Let us turn to our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 5, question and answer 12. You find that on page 478 of your Book of Praise. We are here starting the second part of the Catechism, Our Deliverance. Question and answer 12. Since, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another. Let's now turn to our Belgic Confession, Article 16. That's page 452. Article 16, Divine Election. We believe that when the entire offspring of Adam plunged into perdition and ruin by the transgression of the first man, God manifested himself to be as he is, merciful and just. Merciful in rescuing and saving from this perdition those whom in his eternal and unchangeable counsel he has elected in Jesus Christ our Lord by his pure goodness, without any consideration of their works. Just in leaving the others in the fall and perdition into which they have plunged themselves. After the sermon, let's sing hymn 24, stanzas 1, 5, and 7. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we saw in the opening question and answer of Lord's Day 5 that recognizing that we are all sinners and deserve condemnation, the question on our mind is, is there any way to be restored to God's Favor. That's the exact wording of our Lord's Day. A restoration to God's favor. There is, of course, and the Heidelberg Catechism develops that beautifully, it's by the grace of God in Jesus Christ alone. What our Heidelberg Catechism does not elaborate on, however, is that this is a matter of God's election from before the foundation of the world. Now, we have other confessions that deal with that. The canons of Dort thoroughly deal with the doctrine of election. And also our Belgic Confession in Article 16. And when we talk about the restoration of God's favor, we will this afternoon go right back to the basic, to the very root of God's favor, and that is election. So this afternoon, we're talking about God's decree of election. Not only that, we're also talking about his decree of reprobation. Our article doesn't mention the word reprobation. But if you look at the last line, where it speaks of God being just in leaving the others in the fall and perdition into which they have plunged themselves, that is an explanation of reprobation. Election and reprobation is what we're going to look at this afternoon. Election is a beautiful thing. Reprobation is not. John Calvin, in his second edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, 
1559, called reprobation, and he wrote in Latin, he called it a decretum horrible. Horrible decree. Awful thing to have to talk about. But talk about it, we must. We will talk this afternoon about election, reprobation. They're joined together. This is God's eternal decree from before the foundation of the world. It's not always an easy subject. Either talking about election or about reprobation, it is not easy. It can be frustrating. It can be depressing. It can even make you angry. When I teach this in pre-confession class, I go through the canons of Dort, some of my students get angry. I'm very happy about that. I love angry students. Because that means they're struggling with it. They're trying to grapple with it. They're trying to, to come to some understanding of how to work with God's election and reprobation. And I say, now, let's say you're 18, 19 years old, now's the time to grapple with it and get it clear in your mind so that for the rest of your life you can be comforted by this doctrine of God. In fact, over the many years of teaching election and reprobation, and dealing pastorally within a congregation with the struggles that people have. And I see how, how some struggle with, with reprobation. I have come to the conclusion that the biggest problem is not reprobation itself. But the biggest problem is not really understanding God. It's not knowing God. It's not knowing his word. And it's not knowing yourself for the sinner that you are. But when you really get to know God as, as all-powerful and all-knowing and who holds the whole world in his hands, then from that, knowledge flows very naturally an acceptance of the fact that every human being on the face of this earth is either elected by God or reprobated by God. Heaven or hell, one or the other. It has to be. In fact, when you come to an understanding of it, it's also deeply comforting. In the Canons of Dort, chapter 1, article 14, when it speaks there about election, it says, Therefore, also today, this doctrine should be taught in the church of God, for which it was particularly intended in its proper time and place, provided it is done with a spirit of discretion in a reverent and holy manner, without inquisitively prying into the ways of the Most High, to the glory of God's most holy name, and for the living comfort of his people. I promise you, brothers and sisters, before this sermon is done, you will realize that when we talk about election and reprobation, it is for the glory of God, and it is for our comfort. We summarize our, our sermon in this way. The decree of election and reprobation is the cause for glorious consolation. We'll look at three things. The sovereignty of God, the decree of election and reprobation, and finally the glorious consolation. So first of all, we're looking at the sovereignty of God. And as I said, the problem that people have with election and reprobation is that they don't sufficiently know who God is. Who is God? Now, you can't just say God is God. That, that's not enough. 
He's more than just simply saying, well, he's this almighty being who takes care of us. Article 1 of the Belgian Confession says, God is one simple spiritual being, and he is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. That's who God is. In fact, it's what he is. These are his qualities or the attributes of God. First thing the Belgian Confession says is that he is almighty. He is all-powerful. He created the world and he upholds it. And whatever he does, he does according to his own plan. And we all know about plans. You have plans. But the best laid plans of men so often go awry. You had a plan for your education. A plan for the the boy or the girl that you wanted to marry. You had a a plan for the job that you would have. You had a plan for for how you're going to manage your money. How many of our plans have failed? How many of us look at our past and say, that's not the way I thought things would go. We have plans and we try to go by them, but you cannot keep them. But God is almighty. He makes a plan and he fulfills it to the very last little detail and item. He is almighty and he can do it. Our article says he's not only almighty, he is omniscient. He, he knows all things. He knows everything that's going on in the world. He's also immutable, which means he does not change. Our article speaks about his eternal and unchangeable counsel. So whatever God has planned, he not only has the power to do it, he not only knows everything that's going on, he won't change. You cannot throw God a curveball. Nothing comes up that God says, my goodness, I never thought about that. No surprises for God. He knows everything. He will not change. He'll do it the way he wants and the way he's planned it. On top of that, Article 1 says he is infinite, which means he's not bound by time or space. We are. We're bound by time and space. You know what I'd love to do after this worship service? Change my clothes and walk in the Great Wall of China. I can't. That's many, many hours away by an airplane. I'm stuck here in this specific time. No way around it. Not God. He created time and space for man. He is not bound by it. He is everywhere present. On top of that, brothers and sisters, when, when we think of history, we think way in the past, the world was created. In the future, Jesus Christ will return. What about God? For him, a, a thousand years is as one day. When we say this is now, for God, he is just as much present at creation right now as he is at the end of the world. That's a philo- philosophical discussion that brings us to the very boundary of human understanding. But please understand. Our God is beyond anything you could ever dream of or imagine. So powerful, so all in control, and he has a plan guaranteed. He can keep it and he will fulfill it. Scripture makes that very clear. We sang together in Psalm 33, 
where the Holy Spirit speaks of God's work of creation and history. He says, the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. His plan stands firm forever. Do you remember last Sunday afternoon, we, we dealt with Psalm 139, where, Abraham, where, where David says, even before I was born, the Lord saw my unformed substance in my mother's womb. And before I was born, God wrote in his book every day of my life. Before I say a word, God knows it. And then there's Paul in Ephesians 1 where he says about being chosen in Christ. In him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Would you agree with me, brothers and sisters, based on what we said about the power and the infinity of God and these quotations from Scripture, that our God has a plan for this world and he carries it out to the very last detail. And he does it only because he wants to. He's under no compulsion. This may come as a bit of a shock to you, but God doesn't need you. He doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need this world. But simply because he wanted to, he created this world. He created humanity. He said to humanity, you are my sons and my daughter. We are caught up in the will of God and in the plan of God. and, And whatever he plans for our lives is precisely what's going to happen. Paul says when he was on Mars Hill in Athens, he said in Acts 17, God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them in the exact places where they should live. You see, God planned out everything in our lives. Now that plan in theology we call his decree or his counsel. The decree of God, the counsel of God, is the plan he drafted before the world was made. We also subdivide this this plan of God into two parts, providence and predestination. Providence is the general care that God has for his world. We talked about that last Sunday afternoon. Predestination is God's plan for the outcome of every human being and the angels. That will either be election or reprobation. Heaven or hell. So part of God's plan, what we know as predestination, determines for every human being and the angels, because we read about elect angels in the Bible, God determines, are you his child for eternity or not? And what his plan is, that will be fulfilled. Now, if you happen to glance at the end of Article 15, just before our article in the Belgian Confession, you will have read there the name Pelagius. It's a very important name for Christians. Pelagius is a British monk around 400 AD who said that there is no original sin 
And every person is conceived and born completely neutral. It's up to you whether you go right or wrong in your life. Now, Pelagianism was condemned. But a semi-Pelagianism crept into the church. And that's the basic teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. At the time of the Reformation, it jumped over into the Reformed churches and now is known as, do you know? Arminianism. Pelagius became semi-Pelagianism. It is now Arminianism. And that's what's condemned in the Canons of Dort. Arminianism says that God doesn't determine all of history. Man does. God is not the master of history. He is the student of history. In other words, God, before the world was made, looked ahead into history and saw who would believe and who wouldn't. And if you would believe, if you'd be good, he elects you. And if you're a bad person, you're going to be a bad person, then he reprobates you. So so there is no plan of God that controls everything. Man controls his own destiny. Brothers and sisters, this is not just a, a perverse teaching about salvation. It is an attack on God himself. It reminds us of Adam and Eve in paradise when they tried to shatter the glory of God. To say to God, you are not in control. You decide based on what I do is to slap God in the face, to not to deny that he is the omnipotent, omniscient, infinite God. Our God is in control. And your destiny, your future, where you go, is in his hands alone. That brings us to our second point, the decree of election and reprobation. I will not be long here, brothers and sisters. Not going to make this a, a big, elaborate definition of what election and reprobation is, because for me, what's important is that you have a sense, a certain grasp of the subject enough to whet your appetite and to go home with something that will be of deep comfort to you. God's eternal decree, his counsel or his plan, comes down to two things as far as man is concerned. Election and reprobation. Heaven or hell. Now we're going to talk about reprobation first. That may seem backwards, but you'll see it's entirely logical because the fact is we all deserve to be reprobate. Article 16 opens with this sentence. We believe that when the entire offspring of Adam plunged into perdition and ruin by the transgression of the first man... God manifested himself to be as he is, merciful and just. Now that's a very clear teaching of scripture to us. God made us good. God made us his image. God made us so that we could dwell with him in eternity in a beautiful relationship with our God. But Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, we were all involved with him in that original sin And all mankind is condemned. The only person in the world who never sinned is our Lord Jesus Christ. We are all sinners. And therefore the last line of article 16 comes into play. That God is just in leaving the others in the fall and perdition into which they have plunged themselves. We all deserve to be reprobated. We all deserve to spend eternity in hell. There is no human being 
other than our Lord Jesus Christ who can lay claim, Father, I deserve to be your child and to spend eternity with you in a paradise restored. Reprobation is something that people deserve and we all deserve it. Now that does raise some questions. If God planned everything, and we talked about this a little bit last Sunday afternoon, did God not plan for Adam and Eve to sin? Does that not make God the author of sin? Does that not make God guilty or responsible for our reprobation? Here's where we've got to be very careful, brothers and sisters. It is true. God planned the fall into sin. God planned that Adam and Eve would, would eat of the forbidden fruit and, and lose the ability to be the image of God. Everything happens in accordance with God's plan. At the same time, the Bible is very clear. God hates sin. God forbids sin. God says, I am not the author of sin. So we do not completely understand this, but we do understand that there in paradise, when God put the tree there and said to Adam and Eve, don't eat from it, they had free will. They were absolutely free at that moment to decide whether they wanted to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength or not. It is a breathtaking freedom. It is a glorious moment for mankind that our God says, you are free. You decide, do you want to love me or not? Man decided not. Man rebelled. Man is responsible for his decision to fall into sin, to reject God, and thus deserve death. And that's not just physical death, but it's spiritual death, it's eternal death. It is the fires of hell. So we understand that reprobation is something that people deserve. Whoever turned their backs on God, that is their decision, that is their choice, and they will get what they deserve. And you and I deserve it as well. That brings us to the decree of election. And we see right away what a difference election and reprobation are in a passage like Ezekiel 18, verse 23, where God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Now, God reveals his heart here to us. He says, I hate it when people turn away from me. It grieves me that people are living in sin and in unbelief and will go to hell. That hurts me. My greatest joy is seeing a people who repent, who turn away from their wicked ways, believe in me. But now what we will see is that the only way you can turn to God is through the grace of God himself based on his eternal decree of election. What is election? Now I happen to see a couple of catechism students of mine here in the congregation. We don't do this, but I'd love to have one of them stand up and tell you what election is because I made them memorize it. I made them memorize it from the Canons of Dort, chapter 1, Article 7. There's one long sentence there. 
It says, election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world, out of the whole human race, which had fallen by its own fault, out of its original integrity into sin and perdition, he has, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his will, out of mere grace, chosen in Christ to salvation a definite number of specific persons, neither better nor more worthy than others, but involved together with them in a common misery. That's one sentence. So what is election? Unchangeable purpose of God, which he drafted before the world was made, from that common mass of sinners, from all humanity, everyone with one foot in hell, God chose some, a specific number of persons, to salvation in Jesus Christ by grace alone. Paul writes about that in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, that means he elected us, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That verse is so important. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So what is election? You don't deserve it. Election is a gracious decision of God to seek you out, to find you by the Spirit and by the Word, to create faith in you. A faith that embraces Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior so that your sins are washed away and you are born again and able to live to the praise and glory of God. Now the canons of Dort state that God has chosen in Christ to salvation a definite number of specific persons. So the number, number of the elect is an exact number. Symbolically in the book of Revelation they're called the 144,000. There's an exact number of elect. Not one more, not one less. Jesus Christ says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is pretty specific there. He says, I know my sheep. These are the elect. I know them by name. I lay down my life for them and not one of them will be lost. All those elected by God to salvation in Jesus Christ, all of them will be saved. Not even one will be missing. Now here's a point on which the Arminians have a huge problem. They said this is not fair. That's a standard challenge that comes up in every catechism class where you deal with election and reprobation. It's not fair. Only some are, are elected. An exact number are elected. In other words, everybody else is going to hell and they have no chance. It's not fair. And Arminius says, it's not fair and it's not right. In fact, it's up to you whether you want to be saved or not. Brothers and sisters, that, that may sound very logical and it may sound very fair. But for Arminius or for anybody to say to me, it's up to you to be saved. Well, you may as well shoot me and put me in the grave because I don't want to live in a world where it's up to me. 
because I can't do it. If you say it's up to me, Pharisee will love it. And they say, yeah, it's up to me, my good works. The Roman Catholic clergy would say, yes, we're the clergy. We deserve to be saved. And people who paid their indulgences and people who gave money to the church says, yes, we can be saved. We deserve it. What about that criminal on the cross hanging there with our Lord Jesus Christ whose whole life was a mess? In the last minutes of his life, he says, Lord, remember me. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. The man had done nothing to deserve salvation. The grace of God met him there on Golgotha. And God's election from before the foundation of the world reached out and grabbed that man in the last hours of his life and says, yes, also you can be washed in the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ. Same thing with that woman, that shameful woman who came to Jesus, anointed his feet with his tears, and wiped his feet with her hair. She had nothing to offer God. She had no claim to say, Lord, I deserve to be saved. But she knew the unbelievable joy that though I'm a wretched sinner, God has shown me that he loves me, that he has chosen me, and for no other reason than that Jesus died for my sins, I'm a child of God. You see, brothers and sisters, the, the doctrine of election and reprobation, reprobation, for that matter, is tremendously comforting when you understand it in the right way. When you know yourself as a sinner, you know you have nothing to offer God so that you can say, I deserve to be saved. But when you beat your breast and cannot even look up to God and say, oh Lord, have pity on me, the Lord will show himself merciful and kind and show that he has chosen us even before the world was made, that we would be his son, his daughter, by grace alone. Brothers and sisters, that, to make absolutely clear what we're talking about here, again we come to that point, it's, it doesn't seem fair. You know, what if I'm not elect? Ever ask yourself that question? What if I'm not elect? I can't do anything about it. I'm a sinner, I know that, but what if I'm not chosen? Do I just got to sit back and accept the fact that I'm slip-sliding away down that trough that leads to eternal perdition in the fires of hell? Now, brothers and sisters, now we got to be careful. And you don't play around with God's eternal decree. We have to distinguish between what God did there before the foundation of the world, what he planned, and how he lives with us in day-to-day life, which is not just every, everything is preordained and you just got to move around like a, a piece on the chessboard. We are in a lively, dynamic relationship with our God. And it is the covenant that operates in our daily lives. In the Canons of Dort, on two occasions, chapter 2 and chapter 4, we read about the well-meant gospel offer of God. The well-meant gospel offer of God says, look, here's Jesus. Believe in him and you will be saved. 
That's what Paul said to the jailer in Philippi, who said, men, what, what must we do to be saved? Paul, Silas said to him, believe, and you will be saved. I'll tell you a little story, brothers and sisters. Once had a, a young lady who had gone astray, very, very young age, left home, hit the streets. You can only imagine the kind of life that she led. But she was brought back to the church with her unbelieving husband. And together they joined the church and made profession of faith. But sometimes hard to break with your past. And she couldn't. And one day she phoned me and she says, Reverend, you are elect. I am not. I am reprobate. Goodbye. And it was goodbye. Somehow she allowed the doctrine of election or reprobation to take over her life. She looked at her life and said, I'm not elect. I'm done. I'm reprobate. I'm finished. I'm going to hell. And away she went. But our canons of Dort emphasize at the end of chapter 1, God will never quench a smoldering wick or crush a bruised reed. Anybody who hears the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ and cries out to God like the criminal on the cross, like the tax collector in the parable of Jesus, like Paul in Romans 7, whoever cries out and says, God, have mercy on me, God will have mercy. You cry out, God will hear, God will bless. You see, that's the day-to-day life in the covenant under the well-meant gospel offer of God. And what you begin to understand is that whatever God determined before the world was made, it's realized in time, in the covenant relationship, and when you, my brother, my sister, weep for your sins and call out to God, then you'll experience a tremendous blessing that God loves you. He has loved you even from before the foundation of the world. Loved you not because you're special, better than others. He loves you because he wants to. And he wants to have you as his son, his daughter for eternity. And that brings us to our concluding remarks. It's a little embarrassing right now to, to admit that in our concluding remarks, we bring forward the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He should have been there front and center throughout the whole sermon. And I guess, in a way, he was. Whenever we talk about election, and the canons of Dort do that, they said election by God before the world was made is an election in Jesus Christ. Take him out, there's no election. No Jesus, no salvation. Before the world was made, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had a discussion, sometimes known as the covenant of peace. They had a discussion. Who will go for me into the world and lay down his life for sinners? And the son, in the words of Psalm 40, says, Lo, Father, I have come to do your will. God so loved the world, so did the Son and the Holy Spirit, that God's Son came into this world in history to lay down his life for the elect, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have life everlasting. When you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and the election of God is 
is touching your life. His choosing you is being worked out. You know it. You experience it. And you feel it. Not by special revelations like you have a vision or uh, some sort of miracle that happens in your life because I never had a vision. I never had anything that I would say, now there's a special sign of God. But I know that I'm elect. You know it too, don't you? You know it when you have that joy in your heart that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. And you find that more and more you want to flee from sin in your life. You want to give your life to the service of God, to walk humbly with your God, to do justice to your neighbor, and that you love nothing more than to draw near to God in prayer, to talk to him and come closer and closer to him. God's election from eternity reaches into time to you, my brother and my sister, finds you, saves you, and lets you live in that joy of salvation. Our God is raising up a new mankind, is building a new world of men and women who are washed in the blood and the spirit of Jesus Christ. There's a new world coming, a new day, a new heaven, and new earth where we will be perfectly restored as the image of our God in Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.